0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Tech and E-commerce podcast. I am your host, Andrei Palamario, and I am the APEC director for Elkot Global Executive Search. Our mission is to connect the tech in supply chain and e-commerce ecosystem in Asia and globally by bringing forward some of the most interesting stories about success and failure from leaders in the industry. I'm happy to have with us today Dr. Ellen Barnard. Ellen is one of the world's leading decision scientists and theory of constraints expert. He's a serial entrepreneur, and he is the founder and CEO of Goldred Research Labs, a company he co founded in 2008 together with Dr. Ellie Goldred, the creator of Theory of Constraints. They were also passionate about applying a robust scientific approach to developing new thinking and decision making methods and advanced technologies to help people make better, faster decisions, decisions that move them closer to their goals. Today, Alan works as a strategy advisor, researcher, and theory of constraint expert and educator with both for Fortune 500 companies, as well as NGOs and government agencies. From a long list of clients, we can mention Microsoft, Cargill, Tata Steel, Nike, ABB, Cisco, SAP, Intel, and many others that Alan has worked with in his capacity as the CEO of Goldratt Research Labs. Hi, Alan. It's great to have you on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Andre. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: It's my pleasure. And I did a bit of homework and research and I was impressed by your background. But let's, uh, let's start with a short introduction. Maybe you can tell us more about the main milestones of your career so far, because I know there are some keywords, right? Entrepreneur, research scientist, Dev developer, author and speaker. But I'm sure you have more stories there.
1: Sure. So I started my career in nineteen ninety two after graduating as an industrial engineer and joined uh, the largest cookware manufacturer in South Africa. And very soon after joining them, you know, I read The Goal, a book that would change my life. And a couple of months later, I had the privilege of meeting the the author of The Goal, Dr. Ellie Goldratt, that created Theory of Constraints, and and. I applied, you know, theory of constraints in our own factory at the moment. At that time, it was producing cookware. And we achieved results that would, under normal circumstances, be considered to be impossible. We literally doubled the throughput of our factories without increasing operating expenses. We dramatically reduced our inventories while at the same time improving due date performance and availability. And, And that was my introduction into the world of manufacturing and distribution, consumer goods supply chains. That fascinated me. And it was a great start to the rest of my career. After a couple of years there, I then had an opportunity to decide what to do. And I met with Dr. Eli Goldert one evening. He had come out to South Africa. And I asked him whether he thinks it's possible to improve any company. And he said, of course. And I said, substantially, not by a little bit, but substantially. He said, yes. And I said, so of all the companies that you've worked with, and you worked with hundreds of different industries around the world, uh, which industry do you think is the most difficult to improve? And he said, after thinking about, but he said, probably process industries, you know, in a kind of a job shop environment, you can dramatically improve your performance, similar to what we had done and even production lines by just being very clever at how you plan the work, execute and constantly improve. But with the process industry, you are stuck with infrastructure, you know, you've got tanks and vessels and, and big plant units. That's really hard. And in those environments squeezing a couple of percent more out was a dramatic improvement. And he said, but, you know, by the way, why are you asking me these questions? And I I said, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say so, but I'm kind of bored, you know, I, uh, at that stage, you know, I'd, I'd reached the level equivalent to COO. I was in my early twenties. We had implemented theory of constraints, every aspect in our business. We developed our own ERP system based on theory of constraints and I was looking for the next big challenge. And after hearing his, his comments, I decided to, to join South African breweries that were considered to be one of the leading breweries at that stage in terms of financial performance, but nowhere in terms of size. And it was interesting because for me, the challenge was, is, you know, improving something that's, that's, that's not great is pretty easy, but improving something that's considered to be almost the best in the world and especially in an industry that 's notoriously difficult to improve was massively challenging and the first three months, I was really kicking myself. I thought, "What the hell were you thinking <laughs> <laughs> I was surrounded by the brightest people you know that i 'd ever met, and on top of that i don 't even drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I had family members from all over the place contacted me, asking me about what am I planning to do with my quota of beer? But as a, just a short summary, it's, it gave me an opportunity to, to think about what's the process that you would use if you go into an environment that you essentially have no intuition about. And I had no intuition about producing beer, making beer and distributing that. And I mean, to give an idea how good South African breweries were at that time, we had, a, we had a couple of people from Germany and, and the US to come in and lecture us about consumer goods supply chains. And now we're talking about inventory terms of, you know, sort of 24 as, you know, the high number that you should be striving to. We were already running in the 30s and 40s, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. So had
1: an extremely efficient supply chain. But what I learned from that experience was not only, it's, it's almost always possible to do substantially better, But I kind of discovered a process that you could use in any environment. So to the listeners or viewers out there, if you're going into an environment that you have very little intuition about, the first thing you want to do is to see if you can pick up if there's a big difference between the best and the worst or the best and the average. So I looked at that that supply chain and I asked myself, what's the difference between their best day and their average day and the worst day? And can I understand what were the conditions that were in place under the best scenario and the worst scenario? And essentially, how can I replicate those conditions on a day-to-day basis? And that could dramatically improve your performance to move it closer towards the best. And that was an extremely valuable lesson. And since then, I've applied it into going into mining, knowing nothing about mining, going into house construction in Japan, knowing nothing about it, but the same idea is look for these gaps between the the best, the average and the rest, whether you apply it at at the manufacturing or distribution or retail level, or even at a human level, right? Like who's the best salesperson? They sell 20 houses per month. What's the average person sell? About four. Okay, what are the conditions that enable that person to sell so much more or to produce so much more? So that was a big thing, and that gave me a lot of confidence. After that, I, you know, I got bored pretty quickly. After that, because, like I said, I I don't even drink beer, even though I learned how to taste it. I've always been an entrepreneur since I can remember. I wanted to be in control of the type of products I develop, services I create. So I co-founded a company with a couple of friends, you know, engineers, and we created essentially a TOC software and services company that were developing mobile apps, et cetera. And I'd become quite close to Dr. Eli Golder by that time. And in the early 2000s, I started working with him on some really, really big complex projects. and. Probably got a little bit addicted to that adrenaline rush when you go into an environment, meet people that you've only seen, you know, doing keynotes at international conferences or sometimes only on the news, you know, and -hmm. you're able to work with these people and you're trying to help them to solve a wicked problem in their industry. And that gave me a lot of confidence to find out that these skills and techniques that I developed over time can work even in those ultra, ultra complex environments. And more and more, I started working with, with Dr. Goldwyn on these big projects. And around 2008, we went out for dinner one night and he said to me, so Alan, what's your dream job? And I explained to him that I've always wanted to have my own research lab. And, you know, I want to be able to choose who I work with, what I work on. I want to build a strong team of very, very bright people that are not overwhelmed by complexity, that really deeply care And that's kind of how Goldwood Research Lab was founded. Since then, you know, we've developed a range of award-winning apps. I've become an author and speaker and uh, the kind of the rest is history.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot to unpack there. And like you said, is it possible to improve any company starting from there and then with no intuition, maybe it's better to identify the gaps between the best average and the worst. That's that's very interesting to hear. So your relation with, with Dr. Ellie was quite an interesting one because maybe it was uh, the catalyst in a few important projects in your life, including the, the Gold Red Research Labs, if I understood correctly.
1: Yeah. Uh, absolutely, there was a couple of moments that, that uh, had a real impact on my life. The first one was literally when I read The Goal, like most people that get introduced to this. And this book is still astounding. You know, it's uh, listed on Wikipedia as one of the top 150 books of all time. You know, it sold more than 10 million copies and it's still in the top 1,000 of books currently selling on Amazon. You know, if you think about how many books there are. But the foreword was where I was grabbed already. Elliot articulated to me, the scientific method in the simplest form that I'd ever seen. He basically said that if you want to make a breakthrough in any field or organization that you're passionate about, you only need to follow two steps. The first one is to have the courage to look for inconsistencies, gaps essentially between what you expect to see and what you actually see. Right? Uh, for example, in mining, Mines are designed, underground mines are designed typically to to do a blast a day, right? Mm The things are designed to do a blast a day. You go in there and you find, okay, so if you're working, you know, 30 days a a month, how many blasts do you actually do? And you'd be shocked to find out that most do around 15 or 16 or maybe 20. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a huge number. So, So the next question is, Step number two is have the courage to challenge basic assumptions related to this inconsistency. And, and there's two ways that you can challenge it. You can think about this gap, right? So one is the assumptions on which you base your expectations, right? So your expectation could be wrong. It could be too, too high or too low. Or the, the assumptions on which you've based your actions to reach that expectation could be wrong unfortunately the most common way is that people tend to after some time if they're not meeting their own expectations or the expectations of their company they start lowering their expectations you know? mm. and that they're not triggers, changing
0: their actions yeah
1: interesting yeah, that soon triggers a self-fulfilling prophecy right where the mining guys would start convincing themselves that there's very good reasons why probably 20 blasts a month is the best that you can do and I, that really grabbed me, that, that moment where I realized, wow, you know, measuring expectation gaps is not where the invita- innovation is required. Yes, it, it requires a bit of courage to point those out, but where the innovation is required is to come up with simple methods and later apps to help us check what are the assumptions that we need to check and challenge that can close those gaps. So, so that was a really big thing. The, the second thing that he said that I, I might sort of touch a little bit later on was, you know, I, I'd often gotten into big arguments with him and I, I, I couldn't figure out for a long time why, you know, he, he was giving me quite a bit of attention. This young guy from South Africa, And he one day said to me, it was because I was challenging him, you know, and was forcing him to articulate more clearly and and sometimes even change his mind about things. But during one of these arguments, he sort of paused me. uh, This was one of our first meetings. And he, he said to me, young man, what's your goal in life? And I, I, I continue to specify, you know, all the milestones as a young 20 year old, odd, guy, you know, you want to drive a a nice car, marry a supermodel, and, you know, come up with one original idea, right? The whole spectrum. And he was shaking his head so much, I thought he was going to fall off the chair. (laughs) Like, you can't disagree with my goal, you asked me what my goals were. And he said, No, it's clear that you don't have the same definition of a goal than I do. Mm -hmm. And maybe that will help you. So I said, what's your definition? And he said, there's kind of two definitions. You can pick which one you want to use. He said, the more serious one is a goal, a life goal is something that when you achieve it, you're ready to die. Mm. And it's, wow.
0: That's powerful.
1: That, that's deep and yeah. And it, it made me think very, very hard. And he said, a more softer version of that. <laughs> Uh, a life goal is simply a dream taken seriously. He said, you have two things to, to in life. You, you need courage to have dreams. Uh-huh. It's very easy not to have dreams. Uh-huh. But once you have a dream, from time to time, you should be asking yourself, how are you taking this seriously? Uh-huh. Is the things that you're currently doing, in fact, the people that you are currently with, is that helping you make progress towards that dream of yours or not? And if not, then you need to change it. So that was my kind of a meeting, and and it's it's those words sort of inspire and haunt me every day of my life.
0: Oh, wow, that's powerful. And how would you? Maybe this is connected to the next question: that is, uh, what is the the main mission of, of Gold Red Research Labs? But uh, one question is this one: what is the mission of of the research labs? But then. Uh, how would you answer the, the goal for yourself or how would you answer the goal question now?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I met Elia again a couple of months later. And one of the things that he left me with was this paradox, right? He said, understand that you could die every day, right? And I said, of course, you don't like to think about it. But yes, that's yeah. true. And he said to me, would you want to die without having achieved your goals? I mean, it still chokes me up as I think about that. And I said, no. So he said, think about it. And a couple of months later, I met him. And literally, you know, one of the things that made him so incredible was he's, he had this incredible memory. And he literally walked up to me and he said to me, and? <laughs> it's like, what's, a, what's the solution to this, you know, puzzle? And I said, well, the only way I can resolve it is that I I must look at a goal as a journey, not a destination. Mm -hmm. I must be able to articulate my goal in a way that I can achieve it every single day. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's pretty good. So what, what have you come up with? And I shared with him that my passion has always been in helping people make less avoidable decision mistakes, helping them not to just you know, make better decisions, but to learn every time they do make a decision mistake. I said to him, I've realized in, in the research that I've done that it's really easy to make mistakes, decision mistakes. There's, there's always infinitely more ways to get it wrong than to get it right. And it's really hard to learn from your mistakes because of practical things like confirmation bias. I, my goal was to, to turn that around i wanted to create simple methods and apps that make it hard for people to make decision mistakes and easy to learn from them and he then shared with me you know that his life goal was to teach the world how to think and that was his ultimate goal was to apply the mindset and methods of the scientific field to the soft sciences and we immediately clicked we realized that there was total alignment in in our personal goals. So many years later, when he asked me about what's my dream job and I explained to him that I want to run a research lab, he said, well, that's what he had in mind f- for me that I'd shown with some of the innovations I'd come up with in, in almost every aspect of fear of constraints by that time, often challenging or improving things that he had done, which he, he highly respected. In fact, his last, last words to me before he sadly passed away in 2011 was, He said, Alan, I expect you not to stand in my shadow. I expect you to stand on my shoulders, right? I want you to continue to challenge what I've come up with uh, and inspire people to do that. So we essentially that evening formulated the the goal of Goldwood Research Labs Mm -hmm. to help individuals and organizations make better, faster decisions when it really matters. And the when it really matters part Essentially hints at the fact that most of the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis, both in our personal life and in business, actually don't matter in a bigger scheme of things. But a few do matter a lot. Getting those right or wrong can be the difference between, you know, a meaningful life or or not and being successful in your industry or not. And that's essentially what what my research lab now focuses on, is to develop simple methods and apps to help individuals and organizations make better, faster decisions when it really matters.
0: That's that's some powerful stories right there, Alan. I appreciate your your sharing. I know one one part of the puzzle is Harmony Decision Maker, and I think there are a few apps there. I would be very curious for you to tell us more about it and how does it connect with the three constraints or is there a connection? I'm sure there is. Sure. Yeah.
1: So firstly, um, we've developed over time, we've developed three apps and each of them is designed to help us reduce an avoidable, a specific type of avoidable decision mistake. Mm -hmm. The first one, which is the one that you're referring to, Harmony Decision Maker, is simply designed to help us prevent the mistake where we don't realize to what extent our strong emotions influences our decisions. Mm. Exaggerated frustrations with our current status quo or expectations with a future change can cause us to overreact and make bad changes. An exaggerated fear of loss or effort or risk can cause us to procrastinate and making good changes. So the Decision Maker app was designed specifically to do just two things is to help somebody discover what those limiting beliefs or assumptions can be that could cause them to over or under react in a situation both in their personal life or in business and secondly develop better options options with more pros and less cons so that's what the harmony decision maker app is we have a change maker app that is really focused on a second type of mistake which is okay we've made a decision to do th- something right and that's the connection between the two apps we've made a decision to do something and then you don't mm-hmm. or you do it partially why is that right so it's all the type of obstacles we will face when we are making changes in our life or business that that app is addressing and it's got you know five simple models that, uh, modules that helps you to design the, the changes, check and validate assumptions, build a project plan, monitor the implementation, and do audits etc so that's the second app harmony change maker and then the last app is is really a range of apps we call it harmony change simulators mm-hmm. and that's trying to address the, the, the practical challenge that we have in managing complex systems is that it's extremely difficult to be able to identify causes of effects. You know, if it was true that when you see a big change, a big result, mm-hmm. you, it must be a big change, right? then it would be pretty easy. You'd say, our performance has gone up by 50% or down by 50%. Go and look for some big change that can explain this. But when small changes can have big impacts, it becomes practically almost impossible to go backwards in time.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so to give a simple example for for the viewers or listeners, imagine you're sitting in a management meeting and we noticed that the profitability of our company went down by 20% last month. What would you be looking for? You'd be looking for some big thing, right? Like what the hell happened last month, right? Yeah. One of the ac- explanations could be that, you know, we have a company with hundred million dollars in sales and our profit up to that point was $5 million. So 5%, right. And there was a 1% reduction in the average selling price, right? Either because we gave away 1% additional discount or we sold through a distributor rather than to a customer, whatever it was, right? Just a 1% change or we could have changed the pr- product mix. That 1% represents $1 million. So essentially our sales have gone from 100 to 99 our variable cost wouldn't have gone down, our operating expenses wouldn't have gone down. So that whole 1 million went off our bottom line, which was 5 million, now 4 million. That's a 20% reduction in net profit for a 1% change in average selling price. That's not possible for our human mind to comprehend in complex systems, right? So simulations is a fantastic way to model complex systems that has these non and feedback loops in both to understand potentially what could be causing
0: the mm-hmm. current effects
1: whether positive or negative, but also to test out different strategies, right? Something has happened, for example, COVID-19. Some of our customers have approached us and we use our simulation models. We've got ones for supply chains, for mines, for project environments, for retailers. And we can use those models to say, if something has happened like COVID, first of all, what is going to be the full impact on our business, on our supply chain? Mm-hmm. And then what would be the best way to respond? And we can stress test many different strategies in a very low cost, low risk way. So that's what the app says. You, you ask the question, what's the connection between theory of constraints and what we do in terms of decision making? Yeah. And that was something that I picked up quite early on, is that Herbert Simon, who was one of the pioneers in operations research and AI, he published, started publishing papers already in the 1970s, that was sharing his, his sort of insight, that more and more, we'll have more and more data and more and more information from that data and that the, the, the scarcest resource will not be data or information. It will be the ability to process that data or information. And he claimed that the constraint or bottleneck is going to become attention, management mm-hmm. attention.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's something that in the early 2000s, we were starting to do these massive projects, as I mentioned around the world, You know, implementing theory of constraints in big organizations. And we were noticing... That they weren't giving us the results that we expected, even though you know the solution was was very valid. We tested the solution often on uh, simulation projects, but what we didn't consider was the fact that the ultimate constraint wasn't going to be cash or supply or capacity or demand. Those things you can always get more of, right? Even the biggest company in the world has only a few percent of the of the world's you know market share, right? So yeah. it can't size of the market that's constraining them. And then I I remember this insight from from Herbert Simon. I started sharing it with Ellie. And that changed a lot. He had sort of reached that kind of conclusion independently. So when we talked about it one evening, it's literally the light bulbs went on and said, what if the constraint is management attention, our limited attention? And when you have an insight like that, one of the things that Ellie taught me is not just to focus. Oh, whoa, New insight. As to think about what else will change as a result,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? What's
1: the chain of mm-hmm. the, the effect of that change? Mm-hmm. And I, we, for example, a simple thing that I immediately did was I said, you know, we use a ratio called return on investment yeah. to make decisions about which things we should invest in and which not, right? But that ratio is based on a on an assumption that cash is a constraint Mm -hmm. what if it's not a constraint what if management attention is so i created a a ratio which i called roma return on management attention right which says i have two opportunities to invest my limited time or attention or budget in both of those could potentially give me a million dollars which one should i go for if the one would only require 10 days of my attention and the other one 50 days of my attention, becomes an easy decision. And what we had realized from that is that decision mistakes is by far the biggest waster of our limited attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it's not just mistakes, but also delays. If you mm-hmm. think about a, a manufacturing environment, right, where there's always this huge ratio between the 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 total time it takes us to get something manufactured right so like four weeks you you order something they quote you four weeks what what's the physical touch time and it's often like a few hours right and that's true for almost any environment you think about applying for a new passport they quote you four weeks how long does it actually take them to prepare a passport correct a, A few hours maybe even minutes right so there's this huge gap and if we can understand What are causing avoidable delays and flow? That's by far the biggest opportunity for improvement. Mm -hmm. And I realized that once you understand that attention is a constraint and that we waste it by making decision errors or by delaying good decisions, you realize that the same is true for decision-making. Think about how long people procrastinate on decisions. Mm. Or we delay the decision until the next board meeting.
0: Correct, correct.
1: How long does it actually take to make that decision when you have a full kit of everything that you need and everybody that you need? You know, a few hours, right? Yeah, yeah. And I realized, wow, that's by far the biggest impact that we could make to help organizations is not just to share with them some of the brilliant simple decision rules that that theory of constraints have developed over the years to do planning and execution and ongoing improvement right because that's really what all the theory of constraint solutions are they're just a set of really simple but practical rules for achieving global rather than local optima but when you apply it to the decision making process is let's start paying attention to the mistakes that we make or the delays that's in them. If we can reduce those mistakes and reduce the delays, that's probably by far the biggest value that we can add to our own businesses and those of our clients.
0: Let's talk a bit more about supply chain, Elena, because you you touched upon it. And I think it would be great to take an example. I, I know you have quite a few case studies where we can bring everything together, right? From the management attention part, probably identifying the gaps and a few others. So is there... An interesting example from uh, from your long list of case studies that you can showcase and tell us more of how, by just implementing your solution, they had a huge increase in in results or efficiency. Or, yeah,
1: there's a couple. One that 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 really stuck with me was an area that I'm really passionate about, which is books. And we were contacted by the the largest you know book publisher in the world. And at that stage, which was the sort of early 2000s, mid-2000s, they were facing a crisis. And I think that many of the listeners and viewers could relate to that. You know, many of our businesses are currently facing a crisis. Mm-hmm. And what do you do when you, when you face a crisis, right? At that stage, what they were noticing is that more and more electronic books were starting to become popular. The average selling price was dropping. And I explained, you know, how huge of an impact even small reductions in average selling price can have on your profitability. And on top of that, you know, Amazon was coming out and was really taking, not just Amazon was a customer, but also a competitor. Mm. Uh, and they, they realized that the more electronic books they're going to be, the easier it will be to copy and the less that they will sell, right? So this sort of double whammy. And they had a CEO that had the courage to commit, not just to protect their level of profitability, but to double it. Mm. The, the reason why I was called in was they had a wicked problem, which is the type of problems we love working on, was that the, the level of returns in book publishing is incredibly high. It's typically between 30 and 40% of every book that's printed comes back for shredding. It's mm. okay. a huge number. And they they did their calculations and they said that, you know, that's about $150 million. If they could just halve it, that would be $75 million. That would be a huge thing, right? So I had an opportunity to meet their CEO and I, it was supposed to be just to be a simple introduction. And he said to me, oh, he's heard about the project. Is there anything that I think could be useful to him at his level as a CEO? And I shared with him this insight that we suspect that the real constraint, the real bottleneck is, is you, right? The
0: bottleneck, the <laughs> bottleneck the is the top yeah. of the bottle,
1: right? And he sort of nervously laughed about that and, and said, you, you're probably right. So I said, what, what and who you pay attention to is going to be all the difference, makes all the difference. So I asked him, you know, he had committed to double the net profit of his company from 150 to 300 million, when all the other CEOs that were candidates were only willing to commit to to sort of keep it rather and not prevent it from coming down. So I said, how are you going to do that? What's your strategy? And he said, well, it's simple, we'll have to figure out a way of doubling sales. And he said, any insights? And I said, well, the first thing is, you know, we use our methodology to find out what these limiting assumptions or beliefs are. And it seemed that the first one that you should consider checking is that you assume that net margins are fixed. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And we know it's not right. Unless you're a trader where all your costs are verbal, your net margins aren't fixed. So I I took him through my sort of way of focusing. I said, look, if you're sitting with $1.5 billion of sales and you've got $150 million of net profit and you want to double net profit, considering not just your, but your direct reports, management attention is probably the scarcest resource. You want to find the fewest possible changes you could make in your organization that will give you not just that goal, but include some buffer right and he said absolutely so i said to him so quick question do you think customers care whether they pay twenty dollars or twenty two dollars for a book he said probably not they're probably not that price sensitive so i said well if you could get an average selling price increase of just ten percent over the next two to three years Mm -hmm. At 10% on $1.5 billion of sales is $150 million. You could double your net profit just by doing that. Now compare that in terms of the level of your attention and probably budget it would require compared to finding a way of doubling sales.
0: Yeah, right? they're two big different challenges,
1: right? Yeah. right? And yeah. I, I'll never forget, you know, he literally he asked me to do the numbers again uh, called in his CFO. I did the numbers again, and he, he went, That that's mind-blowing, right? How did we miss this? And then I said, even if you couldn't do that, if, if all the, the increased profit had to come from selling more, what is your variable cost? And he said, you know, worst case scenario, about 50%. If you add in printing, distribution, cost returns, cost, uh, royalties to offers, etc. So I said, so if we need 150 million in net profit, and your Variable cost is 50%. So that's 150 over 0.5. So we need 300 million in sales. So that's a 20% increase in sales. Mm. If you owned your direct reports now and you asked each of your department heads with a bit of assistance, do you think you could potentially do about 20% more without significantly increasing your operating expenses? And he said, probably they will say yes. He said, that's your second leverage point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, and that's essentially how you know, I would approach any project is to start with what is this goal that they're trying to achieve? Is it ambitious enough to, to force them to think out of the box? Sometimes we're sort of lucky that we get a crisis like that that yeah. forces us to think out of the box, right? We've just lost six months of sales. What the hell are we going to do? But then to think about what's the one thing that if we could get ourselves to believe that that would be possible, that that could change everything. And then to just think about all the yes, buts, right? What yeah. can block us from capitalizing on that new idea? And that's kind of, a, I hope that's a good example. You know, We were able to, to, to get their returns down to a level that was unheard of in their industry, and what I found so remarkable with this company is not only they were willing for us to share what we had done, but actually encouraged us to work with other players in the industry because they realised that that whole industry is fragile, right? Mm. Is that you know, mm-hmm. if, if, if one part fails, everything fails. Even something like the, the book retailers, an important thing later on, we met with some, some people from Amazon and it was in their interest to protect brick and mortar retailers. Why? Because about a third of all sales are impulse sales. Correct. Uh, so people walk into the, the, the book retailer, brick and mortar shop, they see a book and they might buy it online. So mm. if you close that off, you're gonna lose a massive amount of sales. And that, that's sort of the last part is always looking for these win-wins where, you know, you can take the pie and make it bigger because then everybody wins rather than just fighting for a bigger share of the pie. How can we take that and, and increase the size of the pie?
0: Mm. And I feel like, I like we can talk for hours and hours, uh, Fred. We, we have to go back to the last question because uh, we are running a bit out of time. But yes. um, I wanted to ask you about supply chain professionals and how maybe a piece of advice that you would give to them. I think it might apply to all professionals or all people, but how can maybe supply chain professionals in general improve on their decision-making process in order to make better decisions? What would be one piece of advice? I'm, I'm sure we could write probably more than one book on it. But you could do it, not me. But uh, what would be an, an advice?
1: I, I think the first part is to recognize, as I mentioned when I started, how easy it is to make mistakes And how hard it is to learn from from your mistakes, right? Uh, And that when we use technology, like the range of decision support apps that we've developed, we can turn that around. We can use technology to firstly slow down our thinking, right? And to help us consider many more options than what we could have considered. And I think that, you know, if I if I look at a typical engagement, and I see somebody that's in a supply chain planner position and the type of decisions they make on a daily basis, you know, I I have the privilege of supervising a bunch of PhDs and I often sort of think to myself that these supply chain planners that, you know, might earn $100,000 a year or something like that, they actually are making decisions that that you could earn a PhD for, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, And these decision outcomes, whether they're right or wrong, has massive impacts on on the business, right? We we did a project with Microsoft and in the same financial year that we started off, Microsoft is really efficient. They have the best people, the best technologies, but in in the same financial year that we started, they were able to reduce their inventories by over a quarter of a billion dollars and increase sales by a few hundred million, right? And, And we did that by capitalizing on technology, right? Using these decision support apps, to first of all identify what's causing avoidable shortages and surpluses and delays in their supply chain, and then testing different strategies like demand-driven, theory of constraints, et cetera. And once we were confident that we had stress-tested the heck out of these various strategies, We were then confident enough to implement it within the SAP system. And the technology today is so fast. You know, you could build these simulation models like we do within a couple of days now because they're completely self-configurable from platforms. So that could be my advice to supply chain individuals. First of all, make a list of all the decisions you make on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis. Identify which of those are consequential and which ones are avoidable when you make mistakes, right? Because many of the decisions we, we mistakes we make are not av- avoidable, right? You you ask to forecast the sale of a specific item at a location, you're going to get it wrong. Are there ways to improve your forecast? Yes, so, so do it. But you, you're going to be wrong. And if you're wrong, you're going to have shortages and surpluses, right? Mm-hmm. So if that's a decision mistake, that's consequential, think about what's available to you. And, and I think the last... of advice i want to share is we should never let a crisis go to waste there's a great book that elliot written called isn't it obvious which is like the goal version for supply chains for distribution and retail Mm -hmm. and when when he was brainstorming this book you know he had asked me a question he said in the goal what do you think would have happened if alex rogo the main you know character in the goal didn't have his mentor jonah that could use the Socratic method to ask him the right questions that would allow him to gain the insights. And uh, we brainstormed that a little bit and said it would definitely be tough. But there's one thing that could have helped is imagine if Alex had a crisis. Now how do we get out of a crisis? We break the rules, right? Mm Many of the the listeners and and viewers would know what I'm talking about is when COVID-19 hit, suddenly people had to break the rules. You started getting one day's work done in one day, right? Rather than one day work taking 20 days or two months or, you know, um, you started collaborating much more closely with your customers, even sometimes with competitors to find out where can we source stuff and get it there very, very quickly. The problem is that when the crisis is over, guess what we do? We go back back. to the old.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And we'd never think about if these, these new rules were so good to get us out of the crisis, if we could use them on an ongoing basis wouldn't they prevent us from getting into a crisis in the first place? And I think demand-driven is a great example of like that, right, whether it's uh, DDMRP or fear of constraints are all demand-driven rules. If supply chains were implementing these rules that gives them you know, the focus, the fast feedback, the ability to dramatically reduce lead times, improve availability with lower inventories, we could probably prevent future crises.
0: Mm. I'm sure we could, maybe we should do another podcast soon, Alan, because we have so many interesting topics to explore even further, like, uh, like the demand-driven one, and I'm th- sure con- the theory of constraints has so many knocks and, and cracks that we can explore, but I appreciate your sharing. What we will do, we will link up with most resources that you were mentioning in our podcast space so the listeners and viewers can access everything. On that note, I want to thank you very much for the sharing. Best of luck in achieving that goal. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big goal, and I'm sure much more interesting stories will come out of it. And thank you
1: again. Thank you so much, Andre. And I'll share with you the links to our, my podcast series, Impossible Unless, We we take, you know, every episode, we take some target that people might think is impossible, and we ask unless, with a question mark, what are the conditions? And also my, my YouTube channel that has, you know, hundreds of hours of content. Uh, so we'll share those resources with the listeners and viewers.
0: Super. I appreciate that. Thank you again, Alan. Thank you, Andre. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For all the show notes and information discussed in the episode, please follow elcutglobalcom podcast. Also, if you found this interesting, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher or one of the podcast platforms. We are looking forward to your feedback.